Good afternoon, everyone. Hello. As people here I don't know, that's awesome. Lovely to meet you. I'm looking forward to catching up with you afterwards. Uh, it is very good to have people back who've been away on some holidays. Um, yeah, really uh, very uh, joyful this afternoon to be with you. And I'm excited about this, um, this story. Uh, there's a real uh, excitement and it's, it's, it's like we're getting to the good bits, which is sort of weird to say because it's like the bad, <laughs> it's the bad bits as well. Uh, but the, isn't that in, when a movie, when it starts to get interesting? And it starts to be a bit of tension when something's going on. And that is exactly where we are this afternoon. So uh, for those of you who aren't aware, last week I proposed to you, I encourage you to think of the Bible as being a story, not just a bunch of different sort of random moral stories throughout the Scriptures, but actually a single story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has a start, uh, a tension that drives the plot, a climax, and then a finish that brings everything all together. And last week, we, we opened up that introduction, which was Genesis chapter 1. Now, I promise you, we're going to start going through it a lot faster as we go, so it's not going to be a chapter a day, chapter a week. We'll get through the Bible in 10 weeks, but today we are still slow in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, because today we get to the complication. Now, what is a complication? The complication is the thing that comes out of the introduction. So in the introduction, everything was set up for a reason. You get told that the main character is like this for a reason. You get told that this is what he gets up to on a Tuesday for a reason. Why do they tell me what he does on a Tuesday, not any other day? It's all for a reason to set you up for the twist, the problem, the, 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 this complication that uses all of the images and expectations that the introduction has given us and then says, oh, and now it all goes wrong. Here is the thing that's wrong. Here's the problem that we are going to be desperately hoping, rooting for the hero to fix up before the end of the situation. And so this, this, this complication uses everything that we've been primed to think and feel last week in order to get us hooked for the rest of the book. Now, this book is an adventure book. Right? It is an adventure book, as we said last week. We're waiting to see if humanity can do what God gave them, the job that he gave them to do, which is to, to conquer the world, to rule over it, to care for it, to preserve it, to, to, to take care of it as God would have, to be God's representatives on this earth. Now, I, I, I kind of think it's going to be helpful here to, to, to imagine God as a human being, like, what's the image of God in your head that you had? If you were going to, you read the intro, what, what this God was like, what did he do when he created the world? What's the picture of who this God would be in your head? Like, as if you were reading any other book, and you know how you got to imagine the main character, you, you sort of place them with a beard, or, you know, place the lady as tall, or whatever. Now, I'm imagining a retired mountain climber, right? Because, you know, he's, he's set up humans in his image. They're going to be mountain climbers. They're going to be conquering the world. An older guy, a capable dude. Now, he's never had a fall because he seemed very meticulous in his creation, didn't he? Plans out, organises everything, always prepared. And he, I'm imagining he did well off book sales and documentaries, you know, from his exploits. He's retired now, lives in a cabin in a really wild place. But it's, it's a wild place. It's a place that's dangerous to be if you don't have a very particular set of skills. But he has tamed it. And he has turned this little patch of the mountainside overlooking the water into a magical garden for him and his pet orangutans. Okay, fine. Just, just <laughs> I, 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 this, this is just my little vision that came into my head as I'm thinking, what was this guy like? What's this character we met like? My grandfather um, served in Borneo in the Korean War. He's an engineer. And apparently he both learned the local language of the, the tribe who lived nearest to him and made friends with the orangutans. 
So he was in. Jungle, wildlife, people, he was, he was amongst it. This is a thing, making friends with orangutans can be done. And this guy, I've just got in my head this guy, he, he has got these pet orangutans and he has set up this beautiful magical place on the side of the hill, wild place, but he's got this beautiful grove, this garden, this arranged, cared for place that he has set them up with every fruit that they could possibly want to eat because he cares about them. And if there's one thing you know about this guy is he loves his pet orangutans. He treats them like real people. He strolls through the garden with them. He treats them as if they're just like him. So if you've got an intro like that, the one thing you would never accuse that guy of, right, is not caring for his orangutans because he's out there with them every day. Now keep that in mind as we're going to hit the complication. All right, the, we, well, this is the Eden narrative is what it's called, Genesis 2 and 3 together. Um, God didn't come down, create people and then nick off back to heaven. He creates this special place, this garden for them to live in. But it's not just for them to live in, it's also for him to live in. You see, you can tell from the geology that, that Eden is actually the top of a mountain. In, in a way, it's the place where heaven and earth meet, a place where you would be with God. And so God takes this man, this human that he creates, and plants him literally in the garden. But strangely, there's something that's not good, which is a little bit weird because everything's, well, the only person doing stuff so far really seems to be God. So why would something be not good? See, the first thing that's not good in the Bible is actually that this guy's alone. Now, you might have seen some bachelor pads and you might think, yes, it is very not good for one single man to be alone. You might, from the state of the place. But here he says, aloneness itself is not good. Now, why is that not good in the story so far? I mean, maybe it could be because this is an adventure story, right? They're meant to conquer the world, populate the world. It's hard to populate the world with one single man on his own. <laughs> this is a th- and that's how we're supposed to read the text. Whatever the expectation is that's set up for what humanity is supposed to do, and then you read something that doesn't work with it, you go, oh, that's a threat, that doesn't work. The objective becomes harder to achieve, and so this builds a little bit of tension. So God brings the animals to him, parading them in front of them. Giraffes, dogs, and Adam names them all, but none is right for him. None, none, none is fit for him. Dogs, dog might be a man's best friend, but that's, that, that's not enough. And so God sends Adam into a sleep removes a rib from his side, and creates a woman. One of the cool things about um, English and Hebrew is that they both have the same thing where it's just man and woman are just the same word, but just with like the, the feminine, feminizing sort of particle on the end of it so, so that you know that this is exactly the same thing, but just as the feminine version. We are the same stuff. And so single man finds woman, crisis averted. Kids can happen. This is, this is exciting. And, uh, and, and Adam here, he's, he's, he is excited. This is this beautiful poem. This is now bone of my bones. Flesh of my flesh. We are the same. We are the same. It's so good to be with someone else. Kids can happen. And now the world can actually be filled. Now this, this garden can be continued finishing off what God didn't do. You see, the thing that God's making of the garden reveals in Genesis 2 and 3, as you don't see in Genesis 1, it's a, it's a sort of an extra element, is that the rest of the world's unfinished. You see, it's not a safe place. Like, it might have been a beautiful place, but it's not a safe place. It's wild. And Adam's job in verse 15 is to, to work and maintain this garden in its garden-like perfect state. 
So you put that together with a command to be fruitful, care for the whole world, and you can see what this adventure story is really about. It's not just have lots of kids. It's not just climb some mountains. It's extend the garden across the planet. Have some kids. Put a new wing on the garden. Extend it out. Tame a world. To so tend and nurture these wild lands, to extend your rule and your care over it, so that your rule enhances what is there for the blessing of every creature that inhabits that space. And the man's no longer alone, and so he can, together, they can, they can achieve it. With all joy and innocence, enjoying each other in the garden, with no shame, no defensiveness, not a single worry in the world about what they looked like. I want you to think about that. Never any anxiety about what you look like. I mean, I guess it's easy, you don't have to choose clothes. But not a single hint of self-consciousness. Wow. Good joy. No shame at all. But it was strange. Just for a moment, there was something that wasn't good. Almost like a foreshadowing that if something goes wrong, it might go, like, it might go down like that. A human being isolated, disconnected. It's like this little hint. Okay, so with everything idyllic, just a tiny little hiccup of aloneness for a moment, we get to the next bit and all of a sudden, there's a snake. A talking snake. Which you might think, oh, maybe it's just a weird story. No, 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 snakes don't speak in their world either. Snakes don't speak. Speaking, speaking so far in this story, if we think about it, who, who speaks in this story? Only God and God-like characters speak in this story. So is this really just a snake? Is there something more to it? I mean, we remember that there were some sort of possible extras in the first chapter where God said, uh, let's make them like us. So maybe there's other spiritual beings that are like God. Maybe this snake is or is under the influence of one of these other spiritual beings. Ooh, what's being hinted at in this story? This is starting to get a little tense. Now the snake starts talking to the woman. Did God really tell you that you can't have any of all of this beautiful fruit? Like, it's all here. And you don't, you don't get to have it? Oh, no, 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 no. We can, just not from the tree in the middle of the garden. If we eat that one, we'll die. You can almost sort of imagine the snake sort of looking around conspiratorially and just being like, hey, I'm going to let you in on a secret. You don't die if you eat that fruit. No, he's, no, it's not true. He just doesn't want you to have it. Because if you do, you'll get all of the good stuff that he's got. You'll be like him. Now, you can see what he's doing, I hope. I hope as you, you said, maybe this is the first time you're hearing this story. But hear what this snake is doing. He is implying without ever saying it out loud. God isn't who you think he is. He is not generous to you. He's holding something back. In fact, he's holding back the best thing, and not just holding it back, he, he, he does, he's jealous. He doesn't want you to have what he's got. What a petty guy he is. And he didn't have to say any of those things that made him seem like he was the bad guy. He just hinted. Now, if Eve had, you know, completely had her wits about it. Or if she'd managed to, you know, magically come forward, grab a Bible and go back a chapter and remember what had just happened. She'd managed to check in with the history of how God had treated her so far. There's two things she'd have remembered. God is generous. 
my weird retired mountain climber loves is orangutans. That's the one thing you know from the previous chapter. That's what the intro was designed to make you think. He has provided for my every need, she should have been thinking, including my need to even know what I can and can't eat, what will be poisonous and what's going to be good. He'd warned her about the tree, everything she could possibly want, and even a manual for how to use it she had. Of course he wants good for her. She's got a history with that. But the second thing that she should probably have known is that the snake was wrong. God does want Eve to be like him. In fact, isn't that almost the definition of being human? To be like God, made in his image, in his likeness. That's what she was made for. He, God wants to give her, in fact, his whole plan, his purpose was to give her. In fact, he had already given her the very thing that she's being told. Oh, look, oh God, does he doesn't want you to have that. But in a scene that's been familiar to romantic comedies, at least since the early 90s when my sister started watching them and I had to see them, the girl sees the guy early on in the movie and completely misjudges him. Thinks he's a bad guy. And like, and like the sleazy guy in the modern movie trying to snare the girl and, and p- push that guy out of the picture, he bat, the snake badmouths God so that the girl doesn't trust him. I know you say it's going to hurt me, God, she thinks, but after what he said and like, I can't trust, I trust you. And so Eve takes and she eats. And she gives to Adam, who also takes and eats. And you think, hold on, what, Adam? What, where'd he come from? He'd been been there the whole time. And yet not helped Eve to remember the truth that he probably had been directly told and probably had to tell her secondhand and she had to put up with him, not actually saying, hold, hold, hold on, hold on, let me just tell you exactly what God said so that you know. Remember exactly how he's treated us. And he's just silent. The one who was supposed to be a God-like being to speak didn't speak, but the snake did. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that it, it actually, like, when, when I do something wrong, I think that the bad thing is going to come when my dad finds out. Sorry, I'm speaking like I'm a child now, but like, still part of me is there, okay? And, and it's, it's when dad finds out, that's when the bad thing is going to come. One of the interesting things is, is that before God even knew what had happened, well, I'm sure he knew, but before he's found out in the interaction, this had already had bad implications for the relationship. Adam and Eve hid I don't know if you've ever had someone like you see them in a shop or whatever and they like try to pretend like they didn't see you or like you didn't see them and they literally like walk away to get away from you and hide from you. That's not a sign that you guys are good friends. In fact, they then start not just turning on God and running from him, they start blaming each other. Let's flick through. Adam gets double points for the blame game. As they start the blame game, Adam manages to do two things. He manages to both blame his wife. Hey, she did it. God says, hey, what ha- hold, on, hold on, hold on, what happened? Adam says, yep, no, she did it. And then blame God for having given him the wife in the first place. This guy is an expert at avoiding responsibilities. Likewise, Eve then passes on the buck to the snake. The serpent deceived me and I ate. And so the creation told the woman what to do. 
And she obeyed instead of ruling it. And the man went along with his wife's suggestion, despite the direct word of the one who was actually in authority over him, God. And this is what we call sin. You see, sin broke the world here at this point. God then says, so first of all, the relationships are already messed here, as you can see. There is finger pointing, there is attack. If you think they're, you think they're happy to be naked now, no, no, remember, they had to cover themselves up. Then I'm not, I'm not walking around near my husband defenseless, letting him see right through me. It'll just be ammunition for him to hurt me. Their relationships are messed. But now, not only the relationships, but we see God tell them, hey, actually, before I even pronounce any judgment, this is a a broken mess, but now there's actually going to be individual brokenness for each of you. He goes back from having addressed Adam first, then Eve, then the serpent. Now he goes to the serpent, uh, Eve and Adam, back up the tree. It was no sin broke the creation, he says. There is is consequences for sin for, for this third character, the creation itself. It's no longer what it's meant to be, this abundant paradise perfectly prepared for the blessing of humanity. It's not going to be good. It has awful consequences for the woman and for all women. An increase in the travails of childbirth, that uniquely feminine contribution that was made to this conquering of the world, and place them in the vulnerable position of desiring a husband, yet with a world of husbands who are quite happy to use their physical strength and position for their own benefit rather than for the other. And then thirdly, not just consequences for the creation or for women as well, but also for the man. In the hard labour of cultivating food, men will no longer find it joyful, fulfilling, and that it works. There's frustration. There is going to be thorns and thistles and all sorts of things that are going to stop it from working the way that he wants it to. Now, Part of that is actually, as we see later on in the Bible, it's because God's actually putting limits on humanity. He actually wants them to have limits. He doesn't want them to be able to do whatever they want now because now whatever they want seems to be possibly quite destructive. Now that they can't tell right from wrong, well, that's the kind of human. In fact, God says, I'm actually not even going to have you in my garden anymore. I'm sorry. You guys are going to need to leave. I will not have you destroying my paradise anymore. And in fact, as you get to the end of chapter 3, not only that, there is a flaming sword to the east edge of the garden, guarding the way back, so that these humans can't ever be with God again. They're no longer welcome in God's place. He's not letting them have access to the tree of life now, not in that state. And it's actually this part of the story that helps us understand why we can't talk to God face to face. Because that previously existing gate between earth and heaven, we do not have access to it anymore. That's humanity's reality. Now, I want to pick up what kind of story we've got here a little bit. Because we saw last week, this is actually an adventure story, right? Uh, hopefully, I've got my adventure slide. Yeah, we go. So, question of whether they'll conquer, not the mountain, you know, like Alex Hanold in Free Solo, but whether they'll be able to conquer the world. But here, there's, it's, you think, hold on, this is, this, is, this is not good. There's one part of the world they're already cut off from. Eden. It's not going to, and, and anywhere over the world, it's not going to be easy. Now it's going to be hard to conquer the world. Now the earth's going to be fighting back against us. It looked big, and, but fun and difficult. But now that big bad world looks really scary. But I think what this complication has actually started to, to show for us 
is that there's more than one way to skin a cat. There's more than one way that you can understand this story. I'm only going to give, I know I'm going to say I'm going to give you more, but I'm only going to give you two more, and that's it for the rest of the, rest of the series, right? But there are actually three different plot lines that I think help us to understand what's going on in the Bible, and they're hopefully quite relatable. That is, adventure story, will they humans actually be able to conquer, rule, and love and care for the world well? But the second one is a romantic comedy. This is a romance story. The, 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 a lack of trust keeping two characters apart when we want them to be together, it's a classic rom-com trope. This story, that is going to go, as it goes forward, the tension that's going to drive it, the thing that we're going to care about, the thing that we're going to be like, oh, will it happen, will it not, is going to be the answer to this question, will they get back together again? Will they end up together? That's the question. That is what, when we're reading the Bible, we should be looking for. Not just, will humans actually do a good job of ruling the world? Will people be good? But also, will God and humanity get back together? But there's also a third one. Because this snake is what they call in storytelling, apparently, an antagonist. The, the enemy of the protagonist. Uh, coincidentally, often a character that gets introduced in the complication in a good versus evil story. These are the three things that we should be looking for when we're reading any bit of the Bible, right? Is that we know we are in a mixture of these three threads of story. We are looking to see the story that we're reading. It will tell us something about the answer to one of these three questions. Will humans rule the world well? Will God and humanity get back together again? Will the hero defeat the forces of evil or will evil win the day? That's, and so when you're reading it, that is going to help you to understand what it is that you are reading. And what we're going to do, you may have heard that really weird Noah getting drunk story at the start of the, the, start of the, uh, start of the service. What we're going to do, does anyone have any idea? Put your hand up if you think you know what that's about, <laughs> if you've got like, a fair idea of where it's going. Yeah, it was a weird story. I had no idea what it was about until someone who helped me understand biblical theology explained it to me too. So hopefully you'll be like, yeah, of course, it's obvious why Noah passed out drunk in his tent and why that's in the Bible by the end of this. We're nearly there. Um, but as we've gone through to Genesis 2 and 3, just very quickly I know, the, what does this part of the story mean for us in our world? Um, and, and the first way I want to answer that actually is what did it mean for Israel? Because the, the, this kind of sets up a little bit for the world. Imagine if you were Israel and uh, you were sort of, okay, this is what our God says is true, but I know my next door neighbour, he believes that the world's chaotic, that there's no order to this world. Science can't work because repeatable experiments aren't possible because the gods are just chaotic. And if you, if you annoy them, and you never know what's going to annoy them because they're just like human beings and quite cranky at times, and maybe it's not even your fault and they're just getting at you. So you can't really tell what's going to happen. You can't predict anything like the weather. You can't predict anything in particular. The world's just chaotic, and that's just bad luck. That's just how it's going to be. Just live through and get through life. And then the, on, on your other side, there might be your, your, so that's your Mesopotamian neighbor, but then you've got your Egyptian neighbor who says, no, 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 it's, it's, you, you, you can do a little bit more if you just do the right things and you can, you can improve, improve your relationship with the gods and then they'll do good things for you. So you just got to do religion and earn your way into God's good books. What kind of world actually is it that, their God, that, that, that God is telling the Israelites that they've got? Well, the world that he's telling them is it's actually an orderly world it is a sciencible world. There's, 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 there's rhythms to it, and those rhythms follow patterns. Now, I've set them up, says God, but they're there. You can observe them. You can look at the stars, and you can navigate by the stars. You should be able to. You can look at the patterns of the day and tell and understand the time. 
So it should, it's orderly. It's actually a good world. Hold on, is it, is it a good world? But, but, but why then earthquakes in Syria and Turkey killing so many thousands of people? Well, God says, this is, this is what Genesis 3 tells us. It's both an orderly and a good world, but it's one that's been broken. It's one that's been messed up. It's one where human sinfulness has fractured the relationship between the world and the people such that the people are no longer able to actually, they're, they're not ruling the world. We're not ruling the world. If we were ruling the world well, that earthquake wouldn't have killed anyone if we were truly masters as we ought to be. So this is the thing. We could have all sorts of different worlds that exist. What God tells us about this world is the kinds of things that actually we sort of kind of have learned over the years of science. Actually, no, it is orderly. It is created on principles. There's not, there's not just random gods who are just either being cranky or not cranky and so being mean to you or nice to you, depending on how they feel if they bumped their head on the bed when they got out of the bed this morning. Actually, but there is brokenness and it is messed up. And so it's not going to be easy. Now, that's our, that's our first, hold on, that's our first uh, observation about the world. The world's not chaotic, it's not capricious like the gods. It's ordered but broken at the same time. Now, the second, now, the second one where we're going to pick up, the way that this might help us is to ask, how does this help us handle the Noah story, right? You got the Noah story. God has a world that's gone wrong. Uh, Marika said he regrets that he even made people. People are that bad. In fact, actually, the, this is the worst, this is the, I think, the worst description of humans that you ever get in the whole of the Bible that every thought of their heart was only evil all the time. Like there's not, like it, maybe people are just as bad now, but at the very least, they don't get as bad a rap as that anywhere else in Scripture. It is awful. People are bad, but this Noah bloke is good. So good. God's like, yeah, he's my mate. He's my friend. He is righteous. And so God, does start, God decides to start again. Just as the earth was just covered with water and nothing else at the start, he's going to do that again. Wipe the slate clean. But i got one good guy. I don't have to start again. I can get rid of all the bad ones and then I can just keep the good guy. Wipe clean the slate. Noah float along. And then I get the one good guy and his family and they are going to repopulate my world and everything will be good. And you think, right, will they be able to God and humanity get back together in? Yes, Noah's good. They're already mates. This is going to be excellent. Will they be able to conquer the world? Yeah, we've got a good guy. He's going to start on the top of a mountain. When he, when he, when he ends, he's, he's, he's starting back on top of the mountain again. This is going to be perfect. This, is, this has got, the Bible could end in like seven or eight chapters. It's going to be, everything will go good. And then chapter nine, Noah gets drunk. First thing he does, plans a vineyard, gets drunk. And his kid has got no respect for his dad, both comes on in and in a honor shame culture, completely shames out his dad and then runs off to tell, to tell his brothers to come and do the same and to ridicule him too. And there's all sorts of social implications to that that I don't understand. But either way, the story is clear what, is, what it means. You see, why is that story in the Bible? Well, it's to show us that you can't just find the one good guy in the room and start with him and think that everything's going to be okay because there aren't any good guys in the room. You see, sin runs deep in every human being. I, I think in, in uh, you, you know that advice that you get, cut the toxic people out of your life. 
right? That's, you, you, you just got to get that. And then your life will be good because you want to be with energy givers, not energy takers. Well, I mean, there's kind of a pragmatic... I, I, I get what they're doing with that. But the problem is, is that that's not actually going to give you perfect relationships. It's not going to make everything good. Marry someone who you think is the perfect person, just isolate yourselves and stay away from everyone else who are the bad people who make things bad. Well, God says here, do you see what sin's like? And it gets worse again after this. I tried that. I tried just finding the, the, the best human in the whole world. I don't know if you think you're the best human in the whole world, but even that best human in the whole world, that didn't work. The line between good and evil runs down the very middle of every single human heart. And it runs deep. Why was that story there? Well, if we read it in the context of what's going on, we can tell why it's there. It's to tell us that sin runs deeper than that, that we need something new. There's got to be a, more, there's got to be a better solution than this, a deeper, a deeper he- healing, a deeper medicine for the heart than just, oh, well, get rid of the bad people, put them over there, as if we could actually do that, as if we could actually distinguish the good from the bad people. You see, sin runs through all of us and it affects us deeply and it will work its way out in time as it did for Noah and for the generations after him. Uh, I know a bunch of people who don't trust their emotions because they talk about emotions being like, you know, fickle and, and, and hard to understand and maybe they could be telling you untruth and things like that. I'm like, well, sure, but like, what, you think your logic is exempt from that too? You think the way that you rationalise your behaviour is, you know, perfectly applied and you can... And, and you're never wrong about that, and that's, that's exempt from the broken effects of sin? Really? That's less fallen somehow? No, no, every aspect of our humanity just experiences the brokenness of sin. There is not a single person in the world who is not broken physically, sexually, ethically, mentally. There may be neurotypicals out there, but there aren't people who are image of God typicals, even if you're a Christian. Now, why do I say all of this? What's the point of this? The main thing is to simply one thing. If the problem in the garden was humanity not trusting that God is good, when God says, hey, look, no, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, that is going to hurt you. Don't touch it. Sin is bad. Love is going to be good for your relationships, not revenge. Don't do it. Don't touch it. Jealousy is just going to cause you to hurt each other. Don't do it. Stay away. When we think, but gee, jealousy looks good, God. And frankly, right now, you just sound like a fuddy-duddy. That's, that's what we do. This is what, this is what every single time we sin, we tell God, God, I, I, I know you say this, but I, I, I don't trust you. I don't think you're good. I think you must either be stupid or have some other ulterior motive. You don't want the best for me. And that's the lie of sin every single time. And that's why it's here at the very beginning of sin. So what do you do about that? Well, we have got to come to believe that God is good and wants good things for you and wants to bless you. The, the, the most important thing about any person, the most important thing about you is what immediately comes to mind, what immediately you feel in your guts when you think about God. That is the most important thing about you. This tells anyone, this tells God what you will run to. 
when things get hard, what you will obey. Because if, if there is not a sense of, of course I've got to go to him, everything's going to be good there. Of course you will not run to him when things get hard. You will not obey him when it is difficult. So what do we do? What do we do if deep in our heart, what immediately comes to mind, what comes, happens in our gut, our restrictive reaction when we think about God is not source of all good, got to go to him because I know that everything there will be good and he wants the absolute best for me and he loves me. We've got to meditate on the goodness of God. Now, for, you, for those of you who are Christians, then you have something in the gospel already, which you know, you're allowed to think about after this talk because you can do spoilers outside of this. But, but, but to meditate on the goodness of God, to practice thankfulness, to practice a heart of joy in being with Him. But also, but also to take God seriously. Because do you see this story? In this story, we got the best of us. That little one's cute, right? This little one here is delightful to be with. And yet God says, from that heart, that beautiful little heart, there is darkness there and it will come out in sin. And that sin will hurt and will hurt other people. We've got to trust God, not just when he says not to sin ourselves and that he wants good for us, but also when he says that our sin is serious. You see, your sin is serious. Do you take your sin seriously? I'm not good at taking my sin as seriously as I should. I'm, I, I'm rebuked by this. I pretend like I've sort of reached a certain level of kind of semi-respectability and like, well, therefore I can feel good. And then I talk to the people that I know and I find out that I've hurt them. And I stop and I go back and evaluate and realize, actually, that was because I was actually being thoroughly selfish. That sin is serious. It's deeper than we know and believe. That's what the Noah story tells us. God tried to find the one good guy and there's sin in the depths of his heart. But the thing is, is that we will need something more than just ourselves to rely on for this. Because if the opening chapter is true, God is good. He will provide. God will truly turn out to be good. One day we'll realize just how good he is. And that's what we've got to massage, meditate on, pull into our hearts as you read the Psalms, as you pray, as you talk to him, you say, God, are you really that good? Bring to him your doubts that he is that good. And then it will be true what we sang, that we can always run to him because he is strong and kind, but not just kind like nice, not just like a good guy who doesn't care about you, but he's a nice guy. He wants to bring you blessing. That's the lie of the devil that God doesn't care about you and wants to bring you blessing. So I'm going to pray for us now that our hearts will be able to meditate on that, focus on it, so that it'll be natural and instinctive for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is so much in this story about uh, where we've come from. And, and Lord, we're looking, forward to, we're looking forward to reading the rest of the story of humanity as to all the different ways that have been tried, the different methods, the different things that happen, the different attempts to bring you and us back together, to defeat evil, to, 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 to finally have good humans who will rule the world well. It's going to be exciting to open your word. But Father, here we see what's been so wrong. 
And, and it sucks that we don't want to spend time with you. Because it just doesn't feel like it'll be good. But we're wrong, God. We are mistaken. No matter how much logic we've got behind our thoughts. Father, you're good and want to bless us. I ask now for you to bless each one here this week, this moment, in ways that will convince them that what's true about you is true. That you really are good. Good for us, to us, and that you have plans for our good. Father, please, may we meditate on this in ways that undoes our sinful desires. So we'll trust you and want to go to you instead. Father, please bless each one here. In Jesus' name, amen.